<laughs> Jesus, thank you for Joe. Lord, thank you for um, this teaching. Lord, the things that you've placed on his heart, the experience that you've given him. Lord, we just ask that um, you would empower us through his testimony. Lord, that the testimony of you speaking in his life um, and the teaching that flows from that, Lord, would be powerful to us, would it be impactful to us. Um, so, Lord, we just ask that you prepare our hearts to receive teaching. We ask that you prepare Joe to give teaching, Lord, and we um, just make this time yours. We surrender this time to you, Lord. We surrender our tiredness. We surrender our um, preconceived ideas about who you are and what you want to say to us. And we mm-hmm. just stand with open hands waiting for the goodness that you have. So, Jesus, we love you and we thank you. Amen. Amen. Cool. Guys, this is our last day together in this context. Yeah, I'm leaving staff tomorrow. <laughs> I'm not, this is really tiring. I'm just going to leave. It hurt my heart a little bit. No, no, no. Um, last day of lecture today. Um, yeah. Oh, leaving tomorrow? On outreach? Yeah. I wish. No, we still got more learning to do, more encounter to have. Um, but I um, saw a bear last night. A bear? A bear. Actually? Yes. Last night at um, 2 in the morning, I woke up to uh, loud rustling. Huh? Please don't tell me about the No, the cat was totally fine. Um, I actually had that thought, but last night, yeah. It, we heard the sound, and I was like, what is going on outside? And there is a huge, massive bear. How big is he? Eating the, um, I don't know, use your imagination. Like, that big. Like grizzly bear? No. no, we just have black bears here. But I just found it very uh, entertaining. It was like a little, I just looked out my window, kind of brushed the crusties off my eyes, and saw the bear munching down on some trash. And then he got bored, and he left. Um, and then this morning we looked on the street and like it was it was trash day so all the trash cans were up on the road uh-huh. and we looked down the road and all the trash cans were like doo, 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 like dominoes like down the street so uh, oh like a little buffet yeah so it was old, old Slewfoot had a buffet <laughs> yes um, I, I have no spiritual connection with that I just wanted to say that. Um, so yesterday we talked about um, lordship and friendship and uh, God as our shepherd, as our leader. Um, so let's get a little bit of feedback and open it up to things that stood out to you yesterday. Um, an opportunity to share some thoughts, some questions, some feedback. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that's like such a beautiful image that we can kind of get used to, you know, Um, at least for me growing up in the church. There's so many things, so many truths that become um, normal to me and nothing about Jesus is normal. You know, and uh, sometimes those um, Sunday school truths are the most powerful, the most profound. Um, And to me, this is one of them. Yeah. I think um, the friendship 
part of it where like you know spending time with your friend and like how do you pick up characteristics when you start to spend time with your friend mm -hmm. yeah was there with that any anything that came up in your mind about how you'd like to move forward applying that in your life Mm, yeah, that's good. I think, too, like another thing that stood out was like how you brought up like the mention of your friend and how he'll like praise Jesus and does anybody mm -hmm. do that? So, like, it's definitely that's something I'd love to get to. Yeah, that's something that we can do for each other, too, in communities. Be like, oh my gosh, like I actually look up to that, um, that spiritual discipline that you have or that thing mm -hmm. that you're walking in. It, it really um, encourages me. And that's one of the things for me. Every time I'm around him, I'm like, shush. He is just so good at worshiping in, in every moment. Uh, cultivating momentary uh, attentiveness is something he's really good at. Yeah. Any other thoughts, comments? From CJ or Bailey? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know that's so good. That's part of the thing that we're welcomed into. Like, I've always thought that when Jesus says that I've come to give life and life abundantly, that that's not something that we are waiting for after we die, right? This life abundance is something that's available to us right now. And the veil that's torn, right, says when, when Jesus died on the cross that the veil to the Holy of Holies was torn in two, um, symbolizing that we can approach the Holy God. Um, I think I'm always trying to live my life taking advantage of the torn veil. Like when, when, when Paul says to approach the throne of grace boldly, um, what does that mean? And to me it means um, cultivating friendship and cultivating momentary attentiveness and familiarity with, with God. Um, and that leads to so much fruit and ob abundance and obedience for us. So it's really good. Okay, so we talked about um, the shepherd yesterday. And today we're going to go into, um, I'm going to give you a list of things that are um, examples of God speaking in Scripture. And we're not going to have time to go through all of them. Um, but hopefully it can give you a little bit of, um, it can pique your curiosity in, in searching these things out for yourself. Um, but we're going to talk about a, a couple different things specifically today. So I'm going to show you this list again. So this is um, different ways that God has spoken in Scripture. Um, and the paradox of saying that God speaks through silence is not lost on me. Like, I get that. Um, but I want to focus on that today and uh, show you that there's benefit to hearing from God in seasons of silence and of doubt. We looked at creation. That, uh, that's a fun one. 
Pine cones came up a lot. Um, pine cones and the Big Bang. The Big Bang of God's voice. Um, scripture, we've talked about that. And other people, and we're going to go into that a little bit more today. So what happens when somebody comes up to you and says, I feel like I have the word of the Lord for you. What do you do with that? Um, how do you respond to that? How do you discern that? So we're going to talk about that a little bit. And also how to um, deliver stuff like that and hear God on behalf of other people. Um, so top left corner, bottom right corner, those are the things we're going to target today. Um, there's another uh, list here, spoken word, supernatural signs and impressions. Um, so please, 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 I encourage you to dig into these scriptures and see um, what they are illuminating to you about God's voice. <clears throat> There's so much here. Um, this week, man, is something that is so hard to condense into four days. The whole phenomenon of hearing God's voice. And what I have hoped so far to give you is that you have probably have heard God speak before because... It's in his nature to speak. Um, and if you have put your trust in Jesus and have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, um, God has spoken to you in many ways um, and has guided you with his voice. Um, so I, that's an, a goal of mine for this whole week is to try to um, increase your appetite to hear God speak. And, and um, that's, uh, that's kind of all I can do. Um, and I can give you some testimony and witness about how that's been in my life, you know, um, and uh, that we would just want to hear him more. You know, that's, that's our goal. We just want to hear him speak more because, you know, like we explored in Deuteronomy, uh, man does not live off of bread alone, right, but by every word from the mouth of God. Is there a way to put these two slides on the classroom so you can look at it? Yes, I can. I love that question because it was just such a satisfying, like, I can. I can do that. I can see myself doing it right now. Um, yeah, so let's talk about um, not delight. We're going to go here. Uh, I'm just going to keep this slide up, okay? Um, so I want to take some time to talk about doubt, if you haven't experienced a season of doubt in your life, um, you will. You will. Um, and I don't say that to scare you, but I say that because this is something that is, um, I think, um, unfortunately underutilized as a, as a teaching opportunity um, for us in our church communities is what do we do when it doesn't feel like God is speaking, right? We just had this whole week on, oh my gosh, God speaks. He has spoken. Creation happened from his voice. Um, Jesus is the word made flesh. You know, there's just this whole miracle of speaking. And what happens when I just have this intercession time and I can't even hear a whisper? I can't hear anything. Um, what do we do with that? And um, how can we prepare for those days um, and actually have it be something that benefits our walk instead of hinders it. Because um, 
if we can prepare for it and, and if we can understand its role and our position in it, it can actually yield a lot of fruit in our walk. Um, so in this conversation of God clarifying himself, we might be left wondering about this role of doubt in our relationship with God. Um, typically in Christian communities, whenever doubt or a season of silence, you know, some people call it the dark night of the soul, right? It's like this, um, this moment where um, just engaging with God is extremely difficult and um, there's a lot of significant doubt. What do we do with that when we're in a worship morning or in church and it seems like everybody's having this insane encounter, these moments where, you know, um, everybody's coming up to the mic and giving prophetic words and, and all this stuff and you just are left feeling dry and super left out. What do we do with that? And usually there are um, two responses in Christian community to doubt that um, are both, I think, two extremes that we want to avoid. Two extremes we want to avoid. So um, what I want to talk about is how we can steward doubt. Because we need to start from the expectation, not in a pessimistic way and not to be like, oh my gosh, Lord, you're not going to ever speak to me. This, this, this is coming. Um, but because we're finite and fallen people, Okay, finite and fallen people, we're going to um, miss some things. Also, um, there are many, many examples in Scripture of God seeming far away. You know, think about, put, put yourself in the position of the Israelites um, in exile. They had this time of flourishing political and economic power right, and had been thrust into this, this um, new wandering. And they were under the rule of a nation that didn't know Yahweh, didn't care to know Yahweh, and actually encouraged the Israelites to assimilate to um, Babylonian practices. So I'm sure they felt like God was very far away and very distant. Um, so two responses typically uh, to doubt is, one, it's usually really liberally handled. And what I mean by that is um, ambiguity, uncertainty, and permissiveness of doubt lead to a kind of romanticizing of confusion and unfaithfulness. So it seems to me that there are, when I have a season of doubt and I'm uh, maybe posting about it on Instagram or I'm going to different voices, there's one camp of voices that would, when it comes to stewarding doubt, would say, um, everybody does it, it's okay. Um, and there's this kind of, um, loose permissiveness of it that doesn't acknowledge that it's something that needs to be pastored. Yeah. Okay? Um, and I'm, I'm sure that you've um, heard the buzzword deconstruction going around in, in, in our culture today. Um, deconstruction isn't on its own as a word a bad thing. 
as long as your goal is encounter with Jesus by the end of it. Okay, so typically deconstruction is associated with what I've observed in my current environment, whether it be church, culture, friendship, community, is not lining up with what I perceive to be in Scripture. And deconstruction, in a healthy way, can be essentially you attempting to reconcile those two things. You see what I mean by that? Attempting to reconcile what I see in Scripture and what I see in reality. Um, As long as the goal is, I want to be more faithful to Scripture, I want to be more faithful to Jesus, um, removing habits and changing, deconstructing different areas of your life in order for that to be the goal is actually very powerful and very good. Um, uh, It can actually end up taking more of a form of reformation um, individually. Um, However, that idea is um, more becoming a phenomenon of um, yielding to doubt and allowing that to take you away from Jesus, away from Christ. So, first response to doubt culturally is kind of this overarching romanticizing of confusion and permissiveness. Second response is it's, it's very uh, conservatively handled. Um, pressure is put on the person doubting and they're promoting a kind of, this is what John Tyson says, and I'm, I'm completely um, bringing a lot of this observation from what he's observed, John Tyson. Um, there's a great sermon on doubt that he has um, that explores a lot of this way more in depth. Um, and these two categories um, are his observation. Um, second is conservative hand of pressure put on the person doubting, right? Promoting this kind of spiritual perfectionism. Okay, um, that results in a, a heart that is desperately afraid to admit any kind of doubt to anybody, which is also not good. Okay, so we see these two extremes, and we want to find a way to use a season of silence, a season of doubt, to manifest spiritual fruit in our lives. So, how does that happen? Our culture romanticizes doubt and demonizes sacredness, okay? Um, Our culture can be boiled down into um, using this word secularism, okay? So secularism is built on the idea that faith of any kind in any kind of transcendent truth is ought to be dismantled. Faith in any kind of transcendent truth, truth outside of my immediate environment, should be dismantled. That's secularism at its core. So that you can see how that can result in a um, in a dismissing of anything sacred, anything sacred, anything spiritual. If I say any kind of input or truth from anything outside of my immediate environment is changing me, um, then that would be dismissed. Um, John Tyson, in his sermon on doubt, says, uh, it is designed to eliminate faith from our public consciousness. And this might sound very extreme to you. This might, 
anytime a, a worldview is um, summarized into its, in, into its kind of um, stripped down basic thought, our minds can immediately go to everybody's in on it. Yeah. You see what I mean by that? But a worldviews are typically unconsciously followed. You see what I mean by that? Unconsciously followed to where people believe something, but they don't necessarily actually can tell you why. They can't tell you why. And secularism um, as a form of worldview is um, in our culture today. And uh, right now, the worldly response to a, a doubting Christian um, would be to encourage it to its final form of apostasy. Coach it into apostasy. Apostasy meaning just don't be a Christian anymore. So, um, and that's really interesting because a while ago, it would be the complete opposite. Right? It would be uh, very unwelcome to, in a, in a a completely Christian-saturated culture, any kind of declaration of I'm confused or I'm doubting about this or I feel like God isn't speaking to me um, would be met with a lot of resistance um, culturally. But culturally, right now, that's not the case. It would be em- embraced. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. No, the other way around. No, doubt. I think doubtfulness right now in our secular culture, what I'm saying is, um, is uh, encouraged because they're trying to dismantle sacredness. Yes. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, and I hate using like they are, but you see what I mean? Like I'm just speaking in generalities here. Um, yeah, so um, Gable Price and Friends, this awesome rock band, Christian rock band, has this song called 50 Milligrams. And um, it is this, I don't even know if this is what the song is about, but he says, this, there's this lyric where he says, when sadness is romanticized, human nature's plank in the eye. And that is, um, I think, that makes me think of this. That makes me think of this um, culture right now where um, my, my depression and my sadness and my doubting and my deconstruction are celebrated. People are saying, good job, good for you to, um, to own these things and, and um, be, confused. be confused. It's great. Join the club. We're all confused. Isn't being uncertain so fun? <laughs> I love it. It's not fun. And it is rooted in this lie that um, there isn't transcendent truth to come and correct yeah. uncertainty. There is transcendent truth to come and correct uncertainty. It's very difficult to cultivate belief in our culture today. It is. Okay, so these are the, these are the, two, the two resistant points. When you encounter a season of doubt, when you encounter a season of silence, okay, or if you already have, um, these two perspectives on doubt are going to make it harder. Um, but let's look at what to do with it. In Psalm... 22. This is a, a psalm that is 
probably one of the most quoted and mysterious records of doubt in the Bible. Also, I'd like to add, the Bible is not shy about giving a voice to the most severe doubters. It's not shy about it, okay? And neither should we. And that's one of the, my first points against the view of doubt and silence as something that, uh, um, that we have done, unfortunately, to people and has wounded people very, very deeply, is um, um, dismiss doubt as, a, as like, like a horse would a fly, right? Um, the fly of doubt lands on you and your Christian community will just go like, we'll swap that thing off. Um, but we need to wrestle with it, right? We need to wrestle through it. And Psalm 22 is the microphone before the voice of the doubter who teaches us how to wrestle through it, okay? So let's read the beginning. Everybody turn there. Let's just go through this together. Psalm 22. Yeah. I need to grab my Bible, actually. Can you grab me a Bible? I have it written out, but I want to... Okay. Thank you. Okay, starting in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry... By day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Let's stop there for a second. One of the major elements that takes place in these first two verses is honesty. Okay? So, I'm going to write this on the board. First weapon against silence and doubt. as explored in Psalm 22, honesty. Can you guys see where I'm getting that from? There's no hint or whiff of any kind of um, hesitancy to just lay it on him, right? David in Psalm 22 is just laying the lament on thick. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. I think these elements of honesty is something for us to look at, beneficial for us to adopt in our lives. So we want, like I said, we want to be able to wrestle through doubt. Okay? Wrestle through doubt. Don't swat it off like like the fly that lands on your back. Right? Don't do that. Wrestle through it. Um, you can't even begin to do that unless you just start with honesty, right? One of these two hindrances that I told you about before, um, one of them um, 
dismisses honesty, like dismisses even have, feeling like you have permission to say. Like imagine if somebody at a church service, okay, came up and was like, I have a word of the Lord, and they just say something like this. I don't feel like God is near at all. And every time anybody's praying, I get upset because I have FOMO. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> and then they leave. Um, you know, like this kind of language is, um, it's so interesting how in our culture, specifically in our, in our Christian communities, is kind of off limits. This kind of language is very difficult to admit. Um, but I want to say to you that we need to get better at being able to cultivate this kind of honesty in our Christian communities. Not even public. I was using that, well, I mean, yes, if that's where you feel like the Lord is leading you, but just in general, in, in, as, as a community that's wrestling through this, we want to feel like we need to start at this place of like admitting that I'm confused or I don't feel like God is speaking. Because what happens when you don't say anything and you're not honest about where you're at and Monday morning worship after Monday morning worship after Sunday morning after Friday morning, all these worship times goes along and you haven't begun to um, enter into the wrestle of doubt, what can start to, to stir up in you in, in all these public resentment, right? Resentment is birth. So... This is, um, well, I don't need to write that, but can you see how that can happen, right? You're, you're in this season of doubt and all these um, awesome fired up Christians are experiencing all this stuff and bitterness starts to develop in your heart. We want to be a people who are far, far from bitterness, far from bitterness. Um, there is serious spiritual fruit in practicing what David did here, practicing that. Um, there's a, psychological phenomenon called spiritual bypassing. Have you heard that term before? Spiritual bypassing can kind of be like, um, well, back to that fly swatting analogy. It's, it's basically that, okay? So, for example, when um, Kirsten and I went through a really hard season of loss in our family, um, if we were, and and uh, the community around us, if we were doing spiritual bypassing, it probably would have looked like, you know, there's, there's uh, just this tragic death in my family, but, but God's on the throne. It's all good. God's on the throne. You see how there's no verse 1 and 2, Psalm 22, in that statement at all? You're using a truth, real truth about God, and using it as a fly swatter for real emotions that are also from God. You're using spiritual truths to bypass how you're really feeling. Or you're like, I have been dealing with um, this particular sin for so, so long, but, uh, but there's, just, there's, there's grace. I'm good. There's grace. I'm good. Spiritual bypassing, not addressing the real issue. Mm-hmm. I 
Oh, okay. That's an interesting application of that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. This challenges that a little bit, huh? Yeah. yeah. I think you're right. Words do have power, and agreement has power. Uh-huh. But acknowledgement and agreement are two different things. Okay. Uh, you see what I mean by that? Acknowledgement unto encounter with Jesus uh, and agreement are two different things. Um, uh, yeah, I think what maybe you can say it a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, between like acknowledgement and agreement, it you saying to yourself like, oh well, I just have anxiety. Is it's doing the um, where do I have it? Um, it's it's the suppressing the um, the doubt. Right, mm-hmm. it's you. You just are accepting a, a fact instead of trying to steward your doubt into growth, yeah. or steward your issue into growth. You know, so whereas acknowledging acknowledging it lets you have a starting point. You know. Yeah. So if you if you don't acknowledge it, then you can never fix it because it's not real. Yeah. You can always admit you're struggling with something without explaining it as like part of you. I feel like that's, that's one of the big differences. Is because like you can be like, I have anxiety, or I'm an anxious person, versus like. I struggle with anxiety sometimes, and God can help me get over that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good way to put it as well. Yeah, we want to be a people who are, are complete in how we, we... You know, God's not like this, this person that we only come and give our, our polished versions of ourselves to, yeah. right? Um. We don't have to withhold anything from him. I don't he can take it. So much with him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is for some reason a lot harder sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Um, and I think there's a level of discernment and wisdom to that too. Is there's there's trustworthy people that you can do that with. I, um, I wouldn't necessarily right away recommend. Um, some kind of public confession right away without, without you um, engaging with a trusted leader or, or a friend to walk through this kind of stuff, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. But with all those things, honesty is a great starting point. We don't want to bypass how we're feeling, um, ignoring a real crisis of faith um, and using the truth about God as like a little Band-Aid for it rather than an actual, um, the truth about God as something that can wrestle with it. This imagery of wrestling is really powerful because it's ongoing, it's, it's um, difficult, it's strenuous, um, but it's intentional. Yeah. Wrestling is, both parties have agreed to enter into the ring <laughs> and, and do this together. Um, so that's what we want to do with Seasons of Silence is don't ignore it. Step into the circle. Let the bell ring and wrestle with that stuff um, with people. So we have to wrestle through it and we can't ignore it. So honesty, that's our first observation, okay? Um, 
let's go into, still in Psalm 22, let's read some more. Um, so verses 1 and 2 were honesty. Verses 3, 4, and 5. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. So my second point in this, as this psalm develops, is remembrance, cultivating remembrance. It's very difficult in a season of doubt and silence. Amen. To um, rely on any kind of, well, I guess it's kind of self-explanatory. Silence means you're not getting any new input from God, right? So your food for that time becomes remembrance, which is good food, by the way. It's good spiritual food. Acknowledging God's character through remembrance. That's what David's doing here. He said, right now in this moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far? Um, And then he moves into, you are enthroned as the Holy One. So there's his character, his position. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. So he's thinking through this, probably even mentally, just like imagining the split sea, imagining the liberation from Egypt. Um, to you, they cried out and were saved. So he's remembering, he's remembering in verse 5 a circumstance where somebody cried out and they were saved. But here, you know, and then look in verse 1 and 2. He says, my cries you do not hear. You do not answer, but he's remembering verse 5. To you they cried, and they were saved. So I remember that you are able to do this. You are able to do this. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. So in a position of doubt, it's very, it feels impossible to feel like you're making any forward progress spiritually. Um, And that's when you need to feed on remembrance. But also, I'd like to point out that verses Three, four, and five are not spiritual bypassing. When I first read this, I'm like, I'm like, okay, this because here's to be honest with you, this is a buzzword that that um, is exciting because it, it it kind of illuminates something that we've experienced before, right? But you still have to weigh it against scripture. So I had this little moment here, three, four, and five, where I'm like, okay, is spiritual bypassing a negative word for something that actually happens in in the Bible. You see where my thought process is there? But my conclusion is that it's not because of what occurred in verses 1 and 2. Spiritual bypassing is verses 3, 4, and 5 without 1 and 2. Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what spiritual bypassing is. Um, so we want to avoid that because we want to step into the honesty. Um, so we need to rely on what we know about God um, in a position of honesty. And then Psalm 22, as it, as it moves forward. Thank you, CJ. As it moves forward, it continues this rhythm back and forth. 
Honesty, remembrance, honesty, remembrance. David will put forward in all of its glory his lament before God, completely naked and unclothed and unpolished. Here it is. And then he responds with the truth about God, back and forth. There's this rhythm. And almost the structure of the psalm feels like a wrestle. This, you know, this, but this, I know, but this, but this, I, but I know this is true, but this, but this, you know, and it's just this, this tug of war between what is circumstantially occurring and what is the truth in heaven about God. So the, ne- the next question for me becomes, okay, well, how do I do this in community? Because I can just do this in my prayer life. Okay, I'm in a season of doubt. We looked at Psalm 22. That means I just have to follow this format of prayer and doubt will go away. Um, that's not what I'm saying. Because remember in Genesis, the first thing that God said was it's not good for man to be alone. And he wasn't talking just about spouse. He's talking about community. He's talking about companionship. Um, so in a Christian community, doubt can be really difficult to bring up. It's actually, to me, it's easier to bring up in prayer. It's like, oh, I'll just do Psalm 22, and uh, my confusion about anything will, um, you know, I can just get honest with God. And that, that does yield some fruit. That yields, okay, I'm not saying that it's, you're making that up. Um, but community is part of the way God speaks. Community is part of God's design for growth. Um, and we need to utilize that. So in this kind of FOMO, fear of missing out kind of phenomenon of a person, an individual experiencing doubt in a community, I think that, that um, we touched on this a little bit, that resentment can bridge that gap even further. So when you're experiencing doubt and um, you begin to develop resentment against your community, Um, it becomes even more difficult to bring it up and therefore even more difficult to overcome. Sometimes for me, um, I feel like if I get honest about my confusion, um, especially if it's regarding something that everybody's very excited about, Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to bring up um, because I feel like I might interrupt the encounter that that community's having. But as a community, we need to all commit to not ignore doubt. We need to commit together not to ignore it. John Tyson, again, he says, There is no road to spiritual maturity that does not go straight through doubt. There is no road to spiritual maturity that does not go straight through doubt. So my proposition to you for you to consider is that silence and doubt are actually not a removal of God's development in you. It is actually his sanctification lying even heavier upon you. And sometimes it is a terrible weight. Um, But it's formative. So my main point to you in talking about this is We've talked about how the voice of God is formative. It forms us. It creates new things, right? We talked about the apocalypse of truth. The voice of God is formative. And 
So is silence and, of, and doubt. Therefore, I think it is a form of God speaking. It is a form of God speaking to be wonderfully paradoxical and poetic with you. I think it is a formative tool in God's arsenal towards us. That's sometimes true, but I would, I would not use that as a, um, something that is a catch-all for seasons of silence. Circumstantially, yes, sometimes. And I think that's um, a step that you should go through in your wrestle. Be like, okay, this is something I'm going to examine. I'm going to examine this. I don't feel like I've received a lot of direction from you lately, Lord. Um, so usually for me, my first step is going, okay, what's the last thing you said to me? And if I've been obedient in that, then we move on to something else. Um, but I would say, to say that every person's season of doubt that they experience is always because they are in disobedience, I would not say that. That sounds suspiciously like Job's friends, <laughs> um, which God rebukes in, at the end of the book of Job. So doubt is not an accident. It's not um, a fluke in the system of your Christian walk. It's not a malfunction. Um, it's actually formative and important. Um, George MacDonald, uh, you've probably heard CJ and I talk about him a lot. He's a Scottish author and poet. And he lost four children to tuberculosis. Suddenly and simultaneously almost, like right, one right after the other. And the circumstances of his life must have been screaming at him to abandon his faith, right? Doubt a lot of times in silence is my circumstances right now do not line up with what I feel like I know about you, right? That's kind of what's occurring in Psalm 22, but George MacDonald had this understanding that doubt is not an accident. Uh, George MacDonald, he, wrote, he writes this. This is his quote. And remember, this is somebody who's experienced a deep loss. Doubts are messengers from the living one to the honest. Doubts are messengers from the living one to the honest. If we are honest, doubt can actually have a role in maturing our faith. If we are honest, doubt can have a role in maturing our faith. Um, it is a formative role in, in God's hand. So we shouldn't be afraid of doubt, okay? This is what I'm saying when I said at the beginning that you either have experienced or will experience a great, great season of doubt, um, maybe more than once in your life. And this is not something that we should run from. It's something that will form us. There's a mysterious passage in Genesis of Jacob wrestling with God. Physically. Wrestling with God. I've always been so fascinated by this passage. Um, because I just picture this lonely... Um, you ever been in the desert, like 
at night. It is the most vulnerable feeling ever because you feel like it's you and then the weight of heaven above you. The infinite, it's like you and the infinite. It's like the same feeling as like um, when, when you were a little kid and you were in the deep end of the pool and you're like, what the heck is underneath me? You know, it's that same feeling. So I imagine this, this environment of Jacob in the desert just under this like naked heaven, okay? And um, he has this insane physical wrestle with God. And after this wrestle, God gives him a new name, a new identity. Um, And he says, um, your name will be Israel, wrestles with God. That's what Israel means. Um, And his descendants were um, birthed from this place. Um, This encounter was violent wrestling with the living one. And he walked away with, he was formed. Okay, you see where I'm going with this? He encountered the Lord in his desert place. I'm kind of, um, I'm kind of using this as as an analogy here or an allegory, which I usually don't like to do. But I, it's I think until my understanding changes, this is where I'm at. <laughs> um, you know, he was in this desert place. He encountered the Lord. He had a wrestle, and he walked away with a new name and a new identity and a new task, a new purpose. And a lot of times our doubt is like that. We're in our confusion. We're in our desert place. We're in our wandering. We, we wrestle with God. We wrestle with that doubt. And we need to anticipate before the, even, the match even begins that we will walk away formed into something better. And Jacob, by the way, was probably limping because it says that God pulled this weird like Naruto, boop, and like popped his hip out of place. Go read it. It's so weird. It's so weird. It's like I just imagine God's like doing this like kind of magic thing, and then he just like puts his finger on the, on Jacob's hip, and he's like, oh, ow, <laughs> and uh, he's like, you're not Jacob anymore, and he and then he limps away, limps away, wondering what the heck just happened to me. What the heck just happened to me? So doubt is formative. <clears throat> it's good. So let's take a, a break there, and we'll pick up, and I, I want to talk about silence specifically. Silence. These two thoughts that I just had actually kind of go together. The first thought I had was Kate, Kate when she was making her announcement about the kitchen, said daily eggs. And I was like, man, aren't you guys glad that the scripture doesn't say, give us this day our daily eggs? It's daily bread. Bread is so much more appetizing. Um, But also we had a little revelation that um, when I was talking about the wrestling with Jacob, the hip being popped out of the socket is uh, something that Tim Mackey observed and that CJ brought to my attention that is... uh, has more to do with God punching Jacob right in the daily eggs. (laughs) 
oh, yeah, that's true, but you know what I mean. Not in the biological sense, no. Um, anyways, I don't want to get too far in, those, in that, but that's a really interesting um, observation of that wrestling phenomenon, how it has more to do with like descendants and um, God's promise for his children. And he did a really violent blessing, I guess. Um, so that was interesting. I never heard that before. Anyway, we're going to continue on our um, talk about doubt and silence. But I wanted to talk uh, about silence. But before I do, on that topic of doubt, do you guys have any questions? Well, we really need to wrestle through that. And um, why what? Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? Why is it so hard to have faith sometimes? I don't know. I've never thought about it that simply before. Why is it so hard to have faith sometimes? Isn't it in, like, in our nature and our flesh to like, well, be against it? That's the most immediate answer I want to give is, yeah, we're finite, and we're fallen, and we're... No, no, go ahead. Answer if you think. Like, yes, there's cases of, like, physically seeing it, but, like, we don't on a daily physically see it. Yeah. Well, you know, Paul somewhere in one of his epistles says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, Mm -hmm. Um, evidence of things unseen. So faith... Is more often than not, um, it's or faith is less of like a I hope I hope for this like what uh, um, Marcus at church was talking about. Um, he was talking about evidence and substance. Okay, he split faith into those two categories. So um, David was practicing faith in Psalm 22 when he's remembering what the Lord has done and what his ancestors have seen. Those are the evidence of things hoped for. Um, so I think it's hard because maybe the simple answer is, to, is the most accurate one is because we are finite fallen people. But it's something that um, God stokes up in us by his spirit and is faithful in our lives by that. Yeah. Doubt is a sin, right? Doubt is a sin? I don't think doubt is a sin. No. I think the, what, what is a sin would be the outcome of doubt, which is something that you have control over. I think we are all prone to sin, but we all have control over our sin. Therefore, I think in a season of doubt, um, we need to be mindful of the fact that um, whatever outcome could be something, of, a formative outcome, like we've been talking about, or an outcome that yields death. Um, and uh, that's why we need to make sure we're wrestling through and stewarding it well and making sure we, we project an outcome that we hope for in the season. I think half the battle is, is knowing that in a season of doubt or silence, it's, it's in and of itself not a bad thing. Like it has the potential to form you and it has the potential to take you away. Um, but you know, doubts, like George MacDonald said, are messengers from the living one to the honest. So we can expect good things to come from it, even though it's difficult. Um, but we need help from our community to do that. 
Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Oh, it's a sermon that um, a pastor from New York City gave on doubt. His name is John Tyson. Mm-hmm. Um, if you watch it, you'll probably see how much I just totally plagiarized from it. No, you should watch it. Um, it's it's one of the it's refreshing to me because of um, of the honesty that's in it. And it's fun. John Tyson, J O N Tyson, like the chicken nugget. Um, Isn't there a rest, like a UFC fighter called Tyson? Mike Tyson. Mike Tyson, yeah. He's, uh, he doesn't have a sermon on doubt. No. Mike Tyson doesn't. You'll get a way different search result <laughs> if you type that in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so what do we do with silence? We've talked about doubt now we're going to talk about silence. I watched a movie um, and have a novel on my shelf that I haven't read called Silence um, that is a very popular exploration of this idea of what happens when, um, when you don't hear God. It's about Japanese missionaries um, in the 1600s, I think, going to feudal Japan, attempting to bring the gospel to them, and experienced tremendous persecution and, um, and doubt and silence. Um, I would not recommend that book if you're in a season of silence or doubt. It will probably pour salt on that wound (laughs) even more. But um, very, very, very powerful stuff. But anyway, um, this is something that is kind of embedded into the Christian psyche um, for years and years and years. It's like how we've wrestled with this and how we've dealt with this. And every generation of Christians has, has come against this type of season. Um, we've probably all been in a position before in, in, in our Christianity where it feels like God is speaking to everyone except for you. You know, we've explored that idea. It's like um, in an intercession time or in, in your youth group or on a Sunday morning, you're, um, people are bringing words and, and um sharing revelation that they've had in quiet time and you do not feel like you can even participate in that or come close to that kind of sensation. So why? Um, this can be really hard and frustrating. And I even just want to, before you, like, acknowledge that. Like, that any experience that you might have had with that is very hard, and I see that. Um, the Israelites um, often serve as an awesome example for us. And tend to be more relatable than you'd think. <laughs> that you can relate to the collective heart position of a whole nation um, as an individual is pretty astounding to me. You know, when we read the Old Testament, we go, wow, this is about a whole nation, yet their whole collective consciousness and how they're um, dealing with God um, really is familiar territory to me. And one of that... Um, one of those elements of familiarity is, is silence and it's something that they dealt with. Um, I brought this up before, but they suffered through the exile. Okay, One of the most brutal displays of distance recorded in the Bible. 
But I would like to also bring an element of truth to that, which is what we perceive as silence may not be what God perceives as silence. Um, And what I mean by that is um, I would like to explore that statement with the idea of Sabbath. Do any of you know what uh, the word Sabbath means? It doesn't just mean day off. Huh? Yeah, that's what it is, but the, the Hebrew word Sabbath means to stop. Stop. Quitting time. Quitting time. Yeah, closing time. <laughs> I, I never remember the lyrics to the rest of that song. It's just that beginning. It's like a ringtone in my head. Closing time. Closing time. Um, but the idea of Sabbath, I think plays an interesting role in the idea of silence. So to stop, okay? So the Hebrew understanding of Sabbath was more an exercise of faith than of rest. Um, Rest had big parts to play in the Sabbath day, but it hit me recently how much faith has to do with Sabbath, how much faith has to do with Sabbath. So think about if you were a farmer and your livelihood your very well-being, your success, your prosperity, your comfort, um, all had to do with your work. It had to do with your work. And then in this um, commandment from Yahweh, it requires you to stop for a whole day. I can imagine a little bit of anxiety starting to stir up in me if I were a farmer and my food, well-being, everything that allows me to live in comfort, my God is asking me to stop doing that, um, I probably would not feel very restful. Um, and this is a, a regular institution that God required of the Israelites to practice. Okay? It was a spiritual practice. Um, and one of the elements of Sabbath or of, of stopping um, that I totally, for the longest time, did not even um, include in, in it was faith. Faith that all of this well-being, this prosperity, and this comfort is now, if for this day at least, and really it's every day, but all of these things are in God's dominion right now. Right? You can see how faith begins to manifest on that day. On that Sabbath day where I can't do anything. Um, I can't take my well-being into my own hands today. And really it's a ceremonial statement of the fact that God is the one doing that. God is the one keeping my well-being in place. Taking care of me. So faith. Faith in the stopping. Um, rest you know, did occur, obviously, and I think that this is a big part of it also. Um, But the often ignored spiritual muscle of Sabbath is faith. It applies pressure to that muscle. Faith that the uncreated God is working and moving without your participation of it, right? We're we're going, when we say, okay, I'm stopping for this day, and some laws, um, I think it's in the year of Jubilee, where you have to, when do you have to do a a Sabbath for the whole field. Do you know CJ? Every seven years? I think, I think that's the year of Jubilee, year year. where you, you, you stop 
tending the field for a whole year. You let the land rest for a whole year. I think that's what it is. This is in, um, in it's the labor laws, probably Leviticus or one of the, in one of the first five books of the Bible, for sure. Um, oh, man, I'm so qualified. Uh, but uh, so there's just so much faith in going like, oh, Yahweh, I'm saying to you by doing this, by stopping, that you have control over these things. Um, without your aid, without your hand on the plow. Faith that God is still organizing and arranging goodness around you. So my point in bringing this up is I believe when we experience a time of silence, that it's a kind of Sabbath of speaking. A Sabbath of speaking. So with that understanding of Sabbath, I think we can be able to engage with a season of silence with a little bit more faith. Where faith is put under pressure in this silence time, the Israelites in exile developed a deep relationship with the Psalms and fed off of those moments of revelation. So in this period of perceived silence, perceived stopping, the Israelites, what did they do? Did they just give up on it? Give up on the whole Yahweh deal? No, they pressed in. They pressed in because they had been training messily, like admittedly. They didn't follow the law perfectly to the letter. But they had been training their consciousness to expect this kind of season and use their tool of remembrance to race through this season of silence. So the Sabbath of speaking, it's also in the same way that doubt is formative and we can cultivate remembrance to walk through that. Um, Silence also is um, not in, I guess, the seasonal sense of the word, but in a kind of momentary sense of the word, silence is a great opportunity to hear God. So I'm not necessarily talking about God being silent, but silence in your environment is a good opportunity to hear God. Um, and I want to talk about that, but any questions on what I just talked about? Thoughts on that? Okay. Can... Oh, one second. I got to find, I want to find where this verse is. Okay, everybody turn to First Kings chapter 19. 11 through 13. First Kings chapter 19, verse 11 through 13. <clears throat> I'm going to start in verse 11. Yeah. 
So the scene here is Elijah, the prophet, um, in this time of Israelites, um, the kingdom of Israel being um, divided and wayward in their loyalty. So they were um, serving false idols. They were serving the, what the Bible refers to as the Baals, which is, the, um, which is a Canaanite god. Um, and the king was corrupted, and there were prophets of Baal um, in the land. And um, Elijah confronts them and has this miraculous, almost a showdown between um, Yahweh and the prophets of Baal. And Elijah stands there alone and um, basically um, engages in, a, in a, a battle of spiritual signs with the prophets. And, of course, Yahweh emerges victorious. Um, and this, is, this scene that we're about to read is following that scene. Okay? Um, then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Um, And then they proceed to have a conversation about how to proceed with the redemption of Israel under the corruption. Okay, but what I want to look at here is a couple elements. So let's break this down. In verse 11, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by in a great strong wind. Okay, so we start, first observation here. Strong wind. Uh, Let's see if I can draw a picture of, like, a really shredded wind. (laughs) That's what I am doing. Strong wind. Oh my gosh. <laughs> if you want a tattoo during your DTS, you can have that one. Strong wind, yeah. So we have a great and strong wind. That's another great observation there. A great and strong wind. This is using this language of just like, this wind was great and strong. So it's, it's painting you this imagery that it's like, it's like a hurricane level. Terrible. Terrible storm tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. And then we have this caveat here. But the Lord was not in the wind. Okay, so strong wind. Lord. No. 
Uh, after the wind, what's next? What's next? Say it. Three, two, one. Earthquake. Okay. An earthquake. What's, uh, what's being repeated here? What's the rhythm that we're starting to notice? It's not the earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Okay, so earthquake. This is, uh, this marker's being stupid. Oh, that's a fresh marker right there. Earthquake. Have you guys ever been in an earthquake before? Yes. It's gnarly. It's, it's gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the earth, I'll explain it to you. The earth um, shakes really hard. What? And, uh, yes. Yeah. I can't remember if it was a dream or not. Or like one of those things where like maybe I actually did. But it's like when I in the moment I definitely didn't realize it and then it wasn't until afterwards and someone was like, Hey, did you feel that earthquake? And I was like, What? Yeah. Some most of the time I feel like in California earthquakes are like are like uh just like you feel this kind of shaking and then all of a sudden like 20 minutes later, your phone's like, get, off, get under cover, there's an earthquake. Yeah. And, and that's like about as far as it goes. Yeah. yeah. It was really funny one time there was an earthquake and I was um, in the bathroom and I just felt this like little like, like just left, right shake. And I was like, huh, that was strange. And then like 20 minutes later, my phone does that like Amber Alert sound thing and was like, find shelter now, there's an earthquake. And, and I was like, were you referring to that, like, nudge that I felt in the... Is there something horrifying? Yeah, it's like, get down! <laughs> you know what? I don't think I've ever experienced an earthquake. I think I was thinking yes. the time where I felt my body shake was turbulence on a plane. Oh, okay. Well, it kind of feels like that, but it's just... Yeah. It is, it feels like turbulence, but it's the very ground beneath your feet in which you put all trust. Yeah. yeah at least That's I what an earthquake... Yeah, but what happens when the nice, solid, immovable ground quakes beneath you? So, earthquakes, very scary, very powerful, but is the Lord in it? No. no. And after the earthquake, a fire. We know all about fires in Oakhurst. Um, that's it. I will leave it at that. But the Lord was not in the fire. So we have strong wind, earthquake, fire. Lord? Everybody say, no. no. Isn't there a band called Earth, Wind, Fire? Earth, Wind, and Fire, yeah. Okay, CJ, I'm going to erase your pelican. It's beautiful. Was this? But the pelican was not in the strong wind. Okay, strong wind. I don't know. There's, there's the wind blowing. Earthquake. And Fire. What are the typical associations of these three things in the Bible? God, God but taking it a step further. Doing. God doing, that's not quite what I'm looking for, but you're close. His presence. Presence. 
right? When's, what's, what's the most famous account of smoke, fire, wind, glory, earth-shaking account in the Old Testament? The flood. Exodus. Exodus, that's what I'm looking for. Mount Sinai, right? All these elements are in it. And so why is this passage going to such great lengths to tell us that all of a sudden, I thought the Lord was in, I thought strong wind, earthquake, fire, all meant that the Lord's presence is here. So why does this passage go to such great lengths to make sure to tell us that the Lord was not in the wind, the Lord was not in the earthquake, the Lord was not in the fire, but contrast a still and small voice, right? Still and small are the exact opposites of all of these three things. Almost like hilariously opposite. It's just the exact opposite. So why is this occurring? One, I think that this biblical author is trying to show us the value of God being outside of our typical associations of him, right? He's not bound by these things. He's not bound by these things. They aren't him. They aren't him. And two, that his voice is personal and precise. The still small voice you can just, I mean, just picture the scene. Engage your imagination. Elijah, weary from his, from his um, showdown. It's almost the exact opposite, right? Yahweh, boom, flexes all of his power against the prophets of Baal. And now Elijah is on this mountain alone. I can just picture him wrapped in some blanket, looking out past the cave mouth. And there's just all this drama. And then almost from behind him or next to him, a still small voice occurs. And he goes, I thought that was Yahweh. You know? And we just had this display of power, so I thought Yahweh was, was this. Um, but this passage says that he's the still small voice. Um, so the reason I bring this up is because I think that the still small voice is the voice in the silence. And it, and, and, um, it is... It is a precision of speaking that, that um, we need to quiet our spirits to be able to hear. If it's a small voice, if it's a still voice, um, we need to get out of the fire, smoke, earthquake and, and engage with God's voice in the private moments. Um, God does not behave in our typical, by our... Um, you know, our usual associations with how he behaves, like the strong wind, earthquake, fire. Um, God does not behave like our culture either. He speaks at exactly the right time with exactly the right thing to say. Our culture bombards us with input. Our culture um, crushes us with content. Yet this, this pastor says he's the still small voice. He's the still small voice. In a time in this passage of of confusion and storm, right? The prophet Elijah um, encountered this whisper, this whispering voice. 
There's so much, um, there's such a tone of, of personal encounter with that. You see what I mean? Because God went from the God of the nation, the God who is dismantling the false prophets, the God who is, who is, um, who is God of the nation and of, the, of, of creation, to the God of Elijah in that moment, in that cave. You guys see how this passage is doing that? Um, and we need to expect that kind of voice in our lives also. This still small voice. Um, personal and precise. <clears throat> we... Um, Sometimes, like Elijah, need or think we need a dramatic display of glory or the the heavenly fireworks in our lives um, in order to obey or or move forward with anything. Um, we need this dramatic display of glory or the the cedar-shaking voice that leaves me with no doubt that God is speaking. Um, but here in 1 Kings, Elijah was alone and discouraged, and God speaks to him with this still, small voice. And is simultaneously separating himself from the ways of Baal. Because Baal, in the Canaanite myths, was understood to be the god of the storm the God of the weather, the God of the rain. So at the same time, we're seeing God revealing himself as a personal and precise speaker and one who is not at all like Baal. He's not... See, the thing is, is when, when I think the ancient world thought of a storm god, that that was a badge of power. It was a badge that said, that God is on it, man, that God can bring lightning, that God can bring rain and growth. Um, however, God, in, in the author of 1 Kings as well, is saying that he is the God beyond the storm, which is actually way more powerful, beyond the storm, and he speaks to his people personally. And Elijah was alone in a cave, in silence before these things happened. Alone in a cave in silence. Um, and I'm using this example to bring up a lot of points, but one of them is that God, God's voice is, is of this personal nature. He speaks to your needs more intimately than anybody else can. He knows you. And he knows exactly what to speak, when to speak, and how to speak. And that he is the God beyond the noise. So silence, you can think about this a little bit practically. We talked about silence as like the, the, the kind of spiritual dark night of the soul. But now I'm talking about silence as like a, an environment for you to set the stage to hear God. Um. Our culture, it's really hard to um, 
hear things clearly and hear the still small voice if uh, there's a storm going on around us, right? The, the, there's so much input coming at us. There's so much content coming at us. Um, it's like trying to have a intimate conversation with somebody in a bar. You see what I mean? Like, if you want to go, hey, can we talk this out? Like, I, we just need to talk through this conflict or, or maybe talk about, like, this big decision. Let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> Let's go to Buffalo Wild Wings and talk this out. And meanwhile, you're trying to share your deep darkies and, and really connect with the person, and some guy named Kyle is spilling his, his uh, juicy IPA down your collar. Right? That's just not what the environment that you go to, right? So the same applies with the Lord. You want to get into an environment where you can hear his voice, right? And uh, so that just applies to our prayer life. We want to make sure we're, we're blocking out time to hear him, making sure that we... Honestly, you guys, like, how many of you guys, when you wake up, like, check your phone right away, like the morning newspaper? Mm-hmm. It's the first thing you do. Oh, I wish we could get out of that, you know, like, because it, it just, it, the first thing you do in the morning, it, it will be like this pitch pipe. This, it'll set the tone for the rest of your day. Yeah. What if we could wake up and before you even speak, before you even say anything, just, just ask the Lord, like, what do you want to accomplish today? What do you want to speak to me today? Um, what if we made that a habit? I think we would be very effective Christians, and I think we would be a lot more confident in our identity if we did that more often, um, and we'd be a lot more rested. So, silence can be a really, really profitable thing for us. Profitable, profitable in the seasonal sense where I'm going through a really hard season of silence where I don't feel like God is ever speaking or profitable in the momentary when I'm intentionally quieting my mind and my environment to be able to hear from God. Both are extremely formative and, and beneficial to us. Um, okay. Have you guys ever heard people say that the longer a couple is married, the more they start to look like one another? Yeah. You ever heard that before? Um, I don't know exactly at what point that's supposed to take place. Like, is it like 10th anniversary, 15th anniversary, all of a sudden you look alike? Um, I'm not sure. I guess I'll find out. But this is, I, I want to tell you this, this is the... It, dynamic that we want as the bride of Christ, right? The church, we're the bride, the bride of Christ, and to look more like Jesus, our bridegroom. And uh, this is something that I think uh, together as the bride, okay, so the bride implies that we're a group of people. That's That's the idea behind that phrase scripturally. We want to pursue that adopting of his nature together. 
And um, the Bible is full of examples of God using each other, other people, for um, sanctification. Using other people to bring his word. Okay, so we're going to talk about now how God speaks through community. So we're moving on from this topic of silence. Um, If you have any doubts, please don't be silent about it and ask ask questions. Did you see what I did? Yeah. Everybody's like, yeah, don't. Just don't. (laughs) All right. CJ, can you do me a favor? Mm-hmm. Could you get me more coffee? <sighs> Has anybody brought you in a worship time or in a prayer time like a, a word of the Lord that just made you feel so uncomfortable? Uncomfortable? Yes. No. Well, not uncomfortable, but you're like, that was that was weird. That was not from the Lord. Maybe? I don't know. Oh, full letters. Yeah, like, um, I mean, like, words, like, German words and stuff were really just, like... They were just love letters? Just, um, well, I rejected her, so uh, I don't know what they were, but they were uncomfortable. <laughs> wow. Wow. No, I'm grateful that all the words have spoken to me. They've been legit? Oh, yeah. Great. So good. That's... I honestly can trace back a lot of like really definitive moments in my life, um, moments of correction, moments of conviction, to some kind of worship time or ministry time where somebody actually delivers a word to me, and it's always so powerful, you know. And it and it, honestly, it shocks me every time. Like I'm, I, I think I, I've I've fully decided that God is able to do that. You know, and every time God does that, I'm like, what? No, that's cool. Like, are you kidding me? Like, um, and it's such a gift. You know, it's such a gift that God uses his community, uses his bride to speak to us and to um, bring us into greater territories of glory and sanctification. But, um, not but, uh, sometimes um, correction is one of the things that happens in this way. How many times has somebody come up to you and given you a full-blown word of correction during a ministry time? Probably not that often, huh? Um, why? I think correction's a gift. I think correction is love. And I think we could actually... Um, if we wanted to, we can choose in this community to love each other with correction. Um, that would be good. Um, it's, it's kind of scary, and I think there are some principles behind it that we can practice. Um, and I think the reason why sometimes we are afraid of correction as a form of bringing a word to somebody, a word of the Lord to somebody, um, it's because it's been abused in churches. It has. It's been abused in churches. I'm not saying it is abused in churches. Full stop. I'm not saying that. It has been abused in churches. And little moments like that 
or um, rumors of abuse like that in churches um, somehow taint our whole view of the bride altogether. Um, and I would like to talk about how we can look at doing correction healthily, hearing the word of the Lord for our brothers and sisters in a healthy way. Um, before we look at, a, at an example of correction in Scripture, um, so there's a big moment in Scripture where there's just a powerful moment of correction um, that we should look at. I'm actually, this is the most youtube format I'm going to get this whole week. Saved it for the last day, okay? So I'm going to give you, I'm going to erase Mr. Strongwind. Can somebody come up with a name for him? Like Gavin. a nickname? Gavin? <laughs> Gavin, Gavin Strongwind. What? Gavin Blowhard. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Okay, we have ourselves a new mascot. That's funny. Okay, strong wind. (sighs) Gail. Gail? Oh my gosh, you're on a roll, man. Uh, Okay, so what am I doing? We're talking about principles of correction. Um, So my hope for this community is that we would not be shy of bringing correction, but we would not be hasty in bringing correction. Okay? So I think one of the things that keeps us far from bringing correction is our inability to hope for restoration in the other person. So my first principle is, Always hope for restoration. Because the truth is, guys, we're living in a community of people, which means that people are going to piss you off. They're going to sin against you in some way. And we need to know what to do with that. Um, Let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you confronted someone on something, okay? So honestly, what's in my mind right now as we're talking about this is like community things, like how to um, walk in correction with like community things. When it comes to like, like, corporate sin issues and stuff, that's a different conversation, okay? I'm talking about how to live in community and bring correction together. Um, do you guys understand what I mean by that? How I'm, so I just want to give you a glimpse of like where my mind is at. Um, so I want to ask you, when's the last time you confronted someone on something and your whole being was consumed with the hope and the holy imagination for that person's flourishing? that person's fullness. Like, a lot of times when we bring correction, we're thinking of getting something off our chest. Like, I have to really examine my heart every time I feel like I'm, you know, somebody might have been using language that was unloving, that I'm observing, or this person's being disrespectful in this, in this, in this group, and I feel led to approach them and say, hey, uh, I think that, um, 
that uh, you, could, you could probably do better in this area. And, um, but um, a lot of times in my heart, it's more of a self-gratifying, I need, I'm, it, I'm angry about this and I'm getting it off my chest. Even if it's true, okay? So even if the correction point is true and they do need to work on that and they do um, you know, struggle with, with loving language and different things like that, um, is my whole being consumed with the imagination of what would they be like if they overcame that? What would they be like if they overcame that? So any kind of correction, we want to think about that. Always hope for restoration. You guys see what I mean by that? We don't want to just get stuff off our chest. That's not the right motivation for correction. So we need to engage in deep self-examination here. Um, And you guys, um, just to keep your eye on the objective here, recognizing the voice of God is God uses other people to speak to his community, right? So this is why we're talking about this. This is... um, God's voice is formative, and one of the ways he forms his bride is with the loving correction of community. It's not good for man to be alone. doesn't mean it's not God. Okay, we just need to have a more holistic view of how he speaks. Um, Next is privacy. I think that correction is a very vulnerable thing, right? Um, and we want to honor people's integrity and community in our midst. This, the first principle kind of plays into this one, you know, always hope for restoration. I've heard you guys so many heartbreaking stories in churches of some kind of confession of sin or um, a one-on-one happens and just that trust is broken and all of a sudden the whole church knows about this thing. The whole church knows. And it takes what could have been a beautiful moment of restoration, which is what we hope for to be formed into the likeness of Jesus more and more. Um, And um, it ends up poisoning it with bitterness and resentment. And usually those people never want to engage that community ever again. Um, So privacy. Privacy. Correction is, uh, I won't write out the whole thing. You guys see what I mean by privacy? Yes. Okay. So just don't grab a microphone on Monday morning and be like, I just want you to know this has happened, you guys. I'm, I'm not making something up to be dramatic. Like, I, I, I've heard of things like this happening before. Like, uh, I just wanted to know when I first met you when we came on DTS, um, you did this, 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 and this, and I just want you to know that I forgive you. And you're like, the whole room is like, what? <laughs> so do that in private. Or uh, maybe phrase it a little bit differently. Is it? Uh, if you're listening to this, um, sorry. I'm so sorry, and uh, my sweater is flimsy. So, privacy. 
Okay, next is we want to be kind. Kindness. Proverbs 15 says a soft word turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15 something. Proverbs 15 something, the official address. Yeah. Can't, can't hurt to read the whole proverb. It's so easy to be hasty with corrections in community, especially when it's, when it's something that feels like a personal thing against you. What? Proverbs 15, 1. Beautiful. <clears throat> Kindness. A soft word turns away wrath. Um, take your time and be intentional. And always remember unto restoration, okay? I told you this is going to be very like YouTube, like top five ways to bring correction. Um, okay, last, oh, I should have done five. It's, it's always top five. You guys ever watch uh, Watch Mojo? Yes. I used to binge those Watch Mojo videos, like, and now I can't stand the, the like, narrating voice of the people. Huh? Yeah, I yeah, I pretty much disagree. Not one, I hear I'm like, I like all of the honorable mentions more than any of these top ten. Okay, last one, humility. Here are a few honorable mentions. I can't think of any. Um, the, this fourth principle is most important when you are the one being corrected. I think, right? If somebody comes up to you and brings correction, we have to have a soft heart and remember that um, we are going through this process of sanctification together and remember that correction is love. Correction is love. Um, it takes a really humble and mature heart to, to uh, do something like this. What if somebody says something to you that's true, but they say it poorly? Does that mean that what they're saying is untrue? No. It makes it harder to hear it, right? And we, we all need to work on communication. And uh, if you've given them permission to correct you, then maybe later you can correct them on the way that they corrected you. <laughs> I... Yeah. Don't cor- if you guys want to correct me right now, don't do it while the podcast is on. because number five don't embarrass Joe yeah all of them that's the that's the last thing don't embarrass Joe on the podcast um I'm just kidding I'm gonna gonna erase that when somebody walks in here and goes like what is Joe saying Um, the, uh, the author of Hebrews quotes a proverb, okay, so we have a, a Walmart double feature here. It's twice in the Bible. Do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. Why? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Discipline, correction, growth is a sign of love. But 
We can do it with love. We can do it with kindness, and we can do it with grace. Um, Okay. Let's move into a time where we look at a moment of correction in Scripture. Everybody turn to... I'm doing so bad at uh, writing down the addresses. Well, I have the text printed out on my notes, but I didn't, uh, I didn't think to print the address because it's, uh, it's um, Nathan's rebuke to David. Did you say I knew it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's in... That's exactly what I was about to say. Really? <laughs> no. So I'm starting in. Um, it's interesting that there's not a second John. Yes, there is. I realized that my Bible was in alphabetical order, so that only said Oh, so yeah, uh, 2 Samuel 12, starting in verse 1. Um, okay. Somebody read verse 1. Down to verse 4. Okay. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Okay. So let's, let's look at this for a second. So we have Nathan, the prophet, approaches King David. We know from the story so far that David had committed a sin um, that is heartbreaking. Um, he um, abused and slept with um, uh, Bathsheba and killed her husband. Um, basically used his power um, as king and raped this woman, killed her husband. Okay? Very bad sin. Very heartbreaking. Um, so Nathan, the prophet, shows up. Um, and I'd like to make this observation to you. It says in, in verse 1, the Lord sent Nathan to David. So notice how it's not Nathan's idea that he was sent to David. It was the Lord's idea, okay? So the Lord is the one who's moving in this, in this scenario. And then we have this, this uh, kind of parable Um, And I'll just reread it. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. This is what really struck me. It was like a daughter to him. 
it was like a daughter to him. This parable is a heartbreaking glimpse into God's perspective of Bathsheba, of David's sin. This lamb was like a daughter to him. Precious, precious. And then later, now traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, the rich man took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And then David's response to this in verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then here is where the dramatic, ironic twist comes in. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You are that man. Man, this story, like you can just like feel like the heart skip moment, the stomach drop that David must have felt in that moment. You are that man. And then Nathan begins to bring this correction. So um, I would like, before we move on, to just double check with you guys. Are we kind of grasping what this parable, how, how this parable mirrors what David did? Yeah. How it mirrors, right? The precious lamb, the daughter in the eyes of the Lord, um, was uh, taken and uh, abused and stolen from Uriah the Hittite. You are that man to David. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. This is in verse 7. I anoint you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. God is here, so this, here's the content of the rebuke, right? This is how the rebuke starts. Um, God here is reminding David of his true nature. He's reminding David of his true nature. He's saying, you are that man, and here's what God says. Here's all the things that I did for you, and I would have done even more for you. And then he asks in verse 9, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites is, is, a, is a really powerful way of saying, like, even though your, your hand wasn't, wasn't the one that swung the sword, it was your sword, the Ammonites. Um, now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. So we have this reminder of, of um, what David has forsaken, what David has turned away from when he committed the sin uh, in the recounting of all that God has done in verse 7. Now we have the consequence 
in verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So here David is acknowledging the nature of his sin um, as against the Lord, the uh, father of his daughter lamb. Um, this, is, this is the um, the ultimate hope for correction is repentance and restoration. We know later in the story that David um, receives a kind of consequence for his sin and what he's done, but he serves as an example of, of, of repentance, of deep groaning kind of repentance, right? So this is the hope of correction is this kind of repentance. And one of the things that always strikes me about this story is Nathan's boldness, right? Can you imagine like the king who, and you know that this king had just gotten done murdering somebody. He's a little murdery right now. Yeah, he's in a murdery mood. And uh, you are sent there by the Lord to just fully, with, with every barb you have, just deliver this rebuke. It's so, uh, it's so tactful, too. Yeah, it's so intentional. He convinces David of his mistake first. Yeah, he does. Because he, with this parable, he gives David room to be um, indignant towards injustice, mm-hmm. softens his heart. Um, and gets his heart um, angry at the right thing. You see that? How he's setting David up to like participate, and like he's like, that man is evil. And then he just, it is really tactful, and he says, you are that man. Um, and the, the result of this is repentance. That's my, my point in bringing that. The result of this is, um, is repentance, and this is what we want. It is um, somehow in kind of the, the collective thought of Bible readers for years, this um, makes David all the more um, of, a, of a super memorable hero character in Scripture, not because of his perfection as a human, but because of his example as being quick to repent um, and acknowledging this. Such a powerful moment. Um, so we want to not run away from repentance. We want to be like Nathan and engage in boldness and bring the word of the Lord to people who we feel like we're being led to. Um, but in the same way, um, not exactly the same way. I wouldn't, um, say that it's necessary to craft together a parable to trap your, your victim in some kind of, uh, admittance of guilt, um, but I think the principle there is, is being tactful, is being, having your eye on the prize. And when, with correction, having your eye on the prize is what? Repentance, Repentance restoration, fullness. Um, so this is what we want. And um, this is uh, the very nature of the voice, right? The voice of God, anytime it... Um, comes into our paradigm is um, 
forming things and bringing us into closer to his presence, right? And that's what repentance does. Repentance is us, you know, we looked at the genealogy of Cain yesterday, how with each child, Cain was, was generationally moving further east, which is away from the presence, right? And repentance literally is, has this idea of like a 180 turn, a 180 turn, turning around, facing the direction of Eden again, facing the direction of, of blessing. So every time God speaks, it has some kind of hint of that. And when we bring correction, when we do it with love and with intentionality, we are partnering with the voice of God in our lives. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm so glad it makes sense. I'm all about making sense. That's kind of my goal. Making sense in dollars. (laughs) Okay. Um, Let's move on to a... One small point I wanted to make as well. Um, this is still in regards to hearing the voice uh, through other people. Um, God will use your personal testimony, your encounter with Jesus, uh, to welcome others into it. There's a passage in John 1, not 1 John 1, John 1, shows us a beautiful moment of invitation. So let's go there. Let's read it together. John 1, verse 40. John 1, verse 40. I love just the inconsistency of the scriptures you said it to my family. But they are consistent. Oh, you mean just my... uh... Sometimes they're marked, sometimes they're not. Oh, yeah. I think, I don't know if you've noticed, towards the end, I think I'm getting it. Like, I'm, like as I'm doing the uh, notes, I'm like, oh, I did start to mark it. Okay. John 1, John 1 verse 40, yeah. <clears throat> so it reads, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John who, sorry, who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So Andrew is one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. I like how in the scripture there's parentheses. Messiah, for all you Greek people out there, that is the Christ, the anointed. Um, Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. So this is the Peter we know. This is the the Peter who denied Jesus three times. This is the Peter who was restored at the breakfast beach uh, that I like to call at the end of John. Um, This is our, one of my favorite Disciples, I guess. It's like, so when I say that, I feel like I'm like talking about like an, an Avenger. Who's your favorite disciple? <laughs> Hulk. <laughs> um, I love Peter. His character and his personality just jumps off the pages to me. But anyway, um, 
what I hope to illustrate to you here in this passage is Andrew had heard and had an encounter with the Messiah, right? We have found the Messiah. And it says the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and introduce him to Jesus. So Andrew was convinced of Jesus being the Christ, and then he introduced Simon to a new identity through Jesus. And everything changed, right? This is, this is the introduction. So for hearing God for other people, your ability to testify and, and act as that kind of introduction, Peter, meet Messiah. Messiah, meet Peter. Or no, he goes, Simon, meet Messiah. Messiah, meet Simon. And then he goes, Hi, Peter. And he goes, no, my name's Simon. He goes, I know what I said. I said Peter. And he goes, oh, okay. I wonder if it's like, as they move on, Jesus just never explains it. He's like, you're Peter now. And then Simon's like, okay, yeah, yes, sir. It's like a mob boss. Yeah. Call you Peter. I think I'll call you Peter. You look like a Peter to me. And uh, just can you imagine like all the way to the end of his life, he's just like, I still have no idea why. Oh, he explains it. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I know. He, well, yeah, because you'll be on this rock. I'll be in my church. Yeah, that's true. Peter means rock. It takes three years. It takes three years. Yeah, can you imagine? He's like, they're at the fireplace, and he's like, Peter, can you pass the fish? And he's like, yeah, okay, I'm Peter now. Like, <laughs> by the way, remember how I've been doing this? He's like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> um, anyway. I just love this, how you can be a vehicle for encounter for other people. You can be a vehicle for encounter when you um, have this moment of encounter with Jesus. And the first thing you do is be like, okay, how can this blessing spill out from me onto other people around me? I mean, the first promise, like one of the you know, interactions with Abram is, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations. It's in God's nature to bless. Whenever he blesses an individual with some kind of encounter, it's always going to bless those around you. That's just the nature of blessing, right? So encounter. God will use encounter with Jesus to welcome others into it. Uh, so cool. There was this one time when, well, actually, I'll save this story. I'll save this story for later. It's a good one. Um, Okay, how we doing? How we doing with, with everything? I feel like I'm, I'm moving pretty quick, but I, uh, I think that we're exploring some good stuff. Why don't we take like a five-minute like, stretch break? Just stand up, move around. I feel like I need that. And uh, unfortunately, hospitality just removed the coffee, so that sucks. But All right. So... Hearing God for other people. Let's keep going on that because this is a a very relevant Mm -hmm. practice for us to to figure out in community, right? Um, I want to talk a little bit about getting what we call words of knowledge, okay? So this is something when when God chooses to tell us um, private things about another person's life, we call it words of knowledge. Um, this happens in evangelism. This can happen in, within our community, okay? 
uh, knowing something that only the Holy Spirit could possibly know. Um, it's not intuition, it's actual knowledge, okay? There's countless stories about people who've, who've uh, just in prayer received a word of knowledge for somebody and then deliver it, and it's just like the most spot-on um, thing on somebody. And um, this is just such a beautiful um, opportunity for correction and also for encouragement, okay? I think a lot of us right away, when we, hear, when we hear about that phenomenon, we're like, oh my gosh, everybody, we've joked around about calling, reading somebody's mail, right? Oh my gosh, somebody read my mail. And uh, everybody's hearing from Holy Spirit and everybody sees, everybody knows. But it's something that is good for the, for the body. Um, this is different than some kind of ongoing suspicion that you might have about a person, okay? So if you, if you have some kind of suspicion that, uh, I don't know, somebody's sneaking out for late night Taco Bell and you know that they committed on a Monday morning worship time that they're going to stop eating so much junk food. I, I renounce junk food. And then at 1 a.m., you're like, I see them leaving. I can see them going to get those, those, uh, those midnight grillers, those crunch wrap supremes, okay? I see them going. I have a word of knowledge for you. I feel... And then the antennas go up. I feel like Holy Spirit is telling me that you've been going to Taco Bell every night. And then they're like, oh, he's reading my mail. That's not, we know, we, and I want you to know that I forgive you. Yes, we, we don't want to, I think we all know that that's like severely um, um, dishonest. <laughs> okay, so this is not something we want to force. And this is not something that we, um, come up with based on an ongoing suspicion about somebody, okay? This is something that you know, Holy Spirit's telling you something, and there's most of the time, actually, when, when it is really from the, from God, from the God, um, you don't feel like it. Like, you feel completely like, I have no, this is probably so off and so wrong, right? It's usually the opposite of what you know about the person, or something Maybe not the opposite, but something that you wouldn't associate with them. See what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very sudden impartation of knowledge. Um, and here are some of the reasons why God does this, okay? Um, to intercede, okay? So right away, I think this is the first question I always ask. Does this person need to know that, this is, that the Holy Spirit just told me this? Sometimes it's just for intercession, okay? Pray for them. Uh, you know, one time my wife had a dream about somebody in our life, and it was it was uh, really striking. And um, it, I don't even think it had anything to do with like sin or anything, but it was just like it was just this striking thing. It was like when we woke up and we're like, we need to pray for this person right now. And then we find out later that it was totally true about this person. I think it was a health health thing. Okay, word of knowledge. I feel like. You know, so, so Kirsten didn't reach out to this person and say, like, hey, I had a dream that, like, you were about to go into this, like, health trial. But we just went into intercession and found out that um, they went through that exact thing and um, came out of it okay. Uh, so words of knowledge are pretty cool. Pretty cool. So sometimes it's to intercede. Just because you know something doesn't mean you should say it. 
That's extremely good life advice. Just because you know something doesn't mean you should say it. We kind of apply this in intercession sometimes too when um, we have a guest coming in or even like we're having an intercession time for somebody and we're like, I feel like the Lord is, is um, revealing to me that this person um, is struggling with this or needs to know this truth about God. And um, sometimes we're like, you know what? Like, we don't need to write that down. Let's just pray. Let's just pray it out. We don't need to put it on their card or, or anything like that. And it's not being dishonest. It's just like, is this profitable for them? Or is the most profitable thing to just pray it out? Um, another reason God does this is to bring freedom. To bring freedom. It is oftentimes a powerful, powerful moment um, in ministry times or even individually where somebody is given an opportunity to be freed from bondage or shame. And this is what we need to be in mind of. It's not to flex some kind of like church party trick. Right? That's not what the gifts of the Spirit are for. It's for the beautification of the bride to bring freedom. Uh, And it allows you to play a part in encouraging and bringing freedom to others. Uh... And number three, to reveal himself shows his love. Uh, I might might have typed that in wrong. To reveal himself. Um, So to show and bring encouragement, um, to to show his love and to bring encouragement to somebody. Um, The fact that he would, a lot of times when I, somebody brings a word of knowledge to me, Sometimes the, the, the major thing is, like, the fact that God would bother yeah. to, like, welcome and bring somebody else into to my stuff and use them to bring encouragement. It's just a testament to Holy Spirit's power mm-hmm. um, and his intentionality with us as a community. Mm-hmm. It's so good. One time I was in a grocery store doing evangelism, and I was praying before I went into the store, and I was like, Lord, like, I'm, I'm kind of off today, man. Like, I don't feel like evangelizing. It's hot. And I was like, just like, I was just praying. And just, I felt like I was supposed to f- talk to somebody in a black and white striped shirt, black and white striped shirt, and went into the store and straight up, right in the freaking beans aisle, Beans. They were shopping for legumes. Um, they. I saw a person in a black and white striped shirt, and I went up to them and uh, felt like as soon as I approached them, I, I felt this invitation for the Holy from the Holy Spirit, um, and it made me so nervous because I'm like, it, it's so probing, it's so private, you know. But um, there's so much encounter that can happen from this. I asked them. I said. Uh, do you have a brother that is struggling with suicidal thoughts and depression? <laughs> Can you imagine if you're just shopping for garbanzo beans and somebody comes up and asks you that question? We're the craziest people on the planet if we think we can get away with stuff like that, and we do. And, uh, and there's legit encounter that can happen, and this person starts crying crying in the bean aisle. <laughs> and, 
And I was just so stunned because I felt like such a, an idiot thinking that I could get away with, with asking a question like that. And, but I just had faith that the Holy Spirit was saying that to me. And I said it, and this person was crying, and they're like, how did you know that? How did you know that? Um, and unfortunately, um, I'm using that as a testimony as a, as a way to say that God does that. But this is also a testimony of how powerful a hardened heart is. <laughs> um, and because they very quickly were like, uh, they actually accused me of having like demonic spirits to like have have knowledge of that. Yeah, premonition. They're like, oh, I don't deal with that kind of stuff. Like you, so and so they just refused it. But they told me that it was true and it was right. And I'm like, I can assure you, I'm a voice of the living God, Yahweh, who loves you. And and they're like, ah, oh, no, 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 no. So they didn't get saved in the benial, but they cried in the benial. And the Holy Spirit taught me a lot about words of knowledge. But you guys, isn't that freaking insane? Yes. That 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 can happen and i was the the very example of an unbeliever in that as a thing probably in in that moment i was just like so like i just stepped out because i heard all these stories of this happening i'm like god i want this to happen and it did so but it takes some tact and some wisdom um and admittance that it's foolish i think all all, all the time when i do that i'm like this is going to sound so strange. This is going to sound so strange, but I really feel like God is revealing this to me. And you would be surprised. You would be surprised how often it actually is God. And then it boosts your faith, man. You're like, whoa, me and God are a tag team. Best friends. You know, like, that's what it feels like, right? Like, God is just like, you know, he's, he's using his divine power, and he's like, watch this. And then he does it, and you're like, What? Okay, and then you do it, and you're like, wingman! Like, you used your skills, and I used my skills. My, my being here. You can't come to the benile right now, God, so I'll do it. Like, um, divine omnipotence, and my legs. Yeah, my legs plus your divine omnipotence equals making someone cry in the benile. Um, but it's most of the time, glory to God, more than that. Um, and a lot better. So when hearing God for other people, um, let's have some faith for that to happen. Um, also, here's more principles for you, some, some actual practical principles. When you're hearing God for someone else, for other people, um, don't make up for your uncertainty or your nervousness by giving it language that doesn't make room for you to be wrong. So say you're like really nervous about it and you're going, uh, okay, I'm, uh, I don't have enough faith, so I'm going to go, thus says the Lord thus. to you in the benile. No disputing it. I'm a prophet of the Lord most high. Don't do that. You, don't, you can be humble enough to just be like, hey, this is going to sound weird. Uh, but I want to give it a shot. We're finite, fallen, like I've been saying. So be, be humble, be the Lord's little idiot, and, and go for it. Are you saying to acknowledge that you might be wrong? Um, I'm saying that it's possible that you might be wrong, and that's okay. You're saying the way you say it 
Yeah. Like, I might be wrong, but here's what we'll say. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair to do. Or you could just say, I feel like this is what I'm hearing from the Lord. When you say, like, I, I feel like that particular kind of language gives you a lot of room. Yeah. Because the thing is, it, you don't, we want to be confident when we feel like, we feel like God has said something, told us, you know, like a word of knowledge or something. But if we, if we approach it with such confidence that no, it leaves no room for us being wrong, um, what we can do is actually make a big mistake and harden somebody's heart towards yeah. hearing the word, you know? Because yeah. what if we are totally wrong and we're like, thus saith the Lord. They're going to be like, dude, you're crazy. Yeah. And if you're like, hey, man, I feel like, you know, I'm a believer, I follow Jesus, I feel like God told me to share this with you. Is this right or wrong? You guys are like, no, that doesn't hit. It's like, well, that's fine. Can I pray for you anyway? You know, like. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You got some room. Yeah. Some room for the person to not be closed off to that happening in the future. <laughs> Yeah. I have a quote here. This, I, I, this is usually kind of how I say it. It's like, I felt impressed by God to tell you. I felt, so you're claiming ownership of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, don't claim stuff to be from God if you're not sure. Because mm-hmm. uh, that's a little thing called blasphemy. Okay. Um, we want to just be honest about that. We just want to be honest about that. Okay, we are running out of time, but I want to talk a little bit about, this is so funny, I felt like I was like, did not have enough content, and sure enough. It was one good one or the other. You are going to have like eight eight extra hours of content. Yeah. I'm also down to hear more during dinner. More what? Oh, I love that you said that. That is so sweet. And wow, I feel like I like that. Okay, um, let's talk about um, delight. So we've been uh, we've been talking about a lot, a lot of topics. We kind of hit the um, a little bit more practical tips and tricks, um, ways to hear God for other people. Um, but we've also just, this whole concept of God speaking is so delightful to me. Mm-hmm. It's so delightful to me because it's just evidence of God's delight for me. Yeah. That, that he would bother to enter into my narrative and, and speak and guide, speak hidden things about my heart that I would have never known um, and call them out into existence, his formative voice calling them out into existence, and letting me do the same thing for other people is such a miracle, the miracle of knowing. So we've been talking a lot about knowing the person himself through this dialogue, through this conversation. Um, And I just want to say that this communicative nature is what makes him holy and what sets him apart. Um, and it's so beautiful. It's so good. So I just want to tell you, just to end, if what we believe is true, if all this stuff that we've been talking about is true, then why would we ever be strangers to joy? Yeah. Why would we ever be strangers to joy? 
And this is what Andy talks about all the time. I'm sitting here on this stool telling you that the God of the universe not only speaks to you, but he delights to speak to you, and he can speak to you hidden things about your heart and for other people that will bring flourishing life. How could we ever be strangers to joy? I think I can um, capture the collective voice of Wyoming Yosemite, something we've been talking about for a long time, is I'm kind of tired, you might hear Nate say this too, I'm kind of tired of grumpy missionaries. Missionaries who uh, are always talking about how much they miss this food and how much they miss, oh, it's kind of hard here. Oh, my feet hurt from walking around in ministry. You hear from the Lord. You hear from the living God. And God's taking you on this adventure. What if we, like children, always upon hearing Heavenly Father speak to us, we can say, would you please do that again? Would you please do that again? More please. I would like another of that. Um, Please complete me with your voice again, Lord. There's a quote from, I skipped it, but I would like to read it, actually. I don't know if I have it here, but that's okay. There's a quote from, um, I think it's G.K. Chesterton, where he's talking about how um, God, what if God never gets tired of making the same lily over and over again? And, you know, when you, you ever be around a toddler and they just, you do this one thing that they love and they just keep going, do it again, do it again, do it again. And you're like, holy, how are you not tired of this? You know, um, I think G.K. Chesterton is like exploring this idea of like, what if God never gets tired of doing it again? when we ask him, right? We're like, Lord, do it again. He's like, I love to do it again. You know why? Because I've been doing it again with each individual flower since creation. Yeah. Yeah, read it. That'd be great. Because children have a bounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they don't want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-ups... Or for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. And it is Chesterton from his book, Orthodoxy. Yeah. Isn't that a cool thought? That's a great thought. Um, I want to leave you with this. God's voice is eternally formative and um, life-giving. When we talk about recognizing the voice of God, we're essentially admitting to the fact that God is going to produce life in us when he speaks. When we say, God, I want to recognize your voice, we're saying, God, you're going to change a lot in me when you speak, and you're going to form new things in me. Um, And I want us to be 
to start this DTS with being willing for that to happen, for, with being willing just to have that yes, Lord, right away. Yes, Lord, when you speak, I know for sure, I'm convinced that this is going to alter my paradigm and build something beautiful and new. Um, and also that his voice is evidence that you are not alone. It's evidence that you are not alone. His voice is the destructive big bang against loneliness. It will destroy the lie that you are alone. You're not alone. Your father wants to speak to you all the time, more than you think, not just in your prayer times, but in every moment. He wants to have this dialogue with you because that's what the whole story of Scripture is about, is about reconciling his people to himself in order to guide them with his voice and to continue to create through his formative voice. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just this miracle of speaking. Lord, we thank you that we can partner with your voice to to produce life in the community around us, to produce life through correction, to engage in love through correction and um, anticipate just the new, the new creation to come from your voice in the same way that it did in the beginning. Lord, we thank you for this miracle and we pray that it would be the weapon against loneliness, that this delight would be the, the, um, the gate that does not allow despair to enter into our hearts, Lord. Um, so we just say we love you, and how could we be um, anything but eternally grateful and joyful? So we just thank you for this week, God. Thank you for this week. Thank you for all these um, ideas that we've been able to explore together for these realities. Just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.